This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Tali Farhadian Weinstein. Tali came to the United States as a refugee in 1979, fleeing the murderous Jew-hating regime in Iran. Tali was educated at Jewish schools and then went to Yale College, Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and Yale Law School. She clerked for Judge Merrick Garland on the U.S. Court of Appeals and then for the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. She subsequently worked as a federal prosecutor, prosecuting gun violence, public corruption, tax, and other frauds, as well as national security matters. Most recently, Tali has served as the general counsel of the Brooklyn DA's office and has been a professor at Columbia and NYU law schools. And she is now a candidate for the Manhattan District Attorney and has the full support of the rabbi's husband. Tali, welcome to the rabbi's husband. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, Thank you for having me and for uh, your full-throated and generous statement of support. So your chosen passage, interestingly, was from a rabbinic commentary. It is. And I um, and if you made an exemption for me uh, to look to the rabbinic text and beyond um, the five books of Moses, I appreciate that very much. I asked you to discuss this text, Mark, because a mutual friend of ours, Rabbi Jason Rubenstein, brought this to my attention over the summer, and I just have not been able to stop thinking about it. So I'm really glad to sit with it today with you and to work through it together. Terrific. So tell us about the passage, what happens in it, what's said in it, and uh, why it's meaningful to you. Okay, great. So this is from, this is, as you said, a Talmudic text from the Babylonian Talmud, Baba Metzia, page 30b. And let's just go through the rhythm of the passage together. So the passage starts with quoting some verses of the Bible and explaining how those are what some of the lessons that we ought to be teaching our kids. It takes us through what I'm going to call dependency work, or what we might even call acts of chesed, acts of loving kindness. So it says, you know, you need to teach your kids about visiting the sick, burying the dead. And then it gets to et hama'aseh. What is this? What does it mean to teach your kids to act? Et hama'aseh. And it says, this is the law. And then comes the surprise of the passage and why I wanted to talk to you about it. It says, What does it mean to teach them the law? It means you have to teach them, and this is a tricky phrase in the Hebrew, to go inside, or what we sometimes translate in English as beyond, the line or the letter of the law. So something like the English phrase of going beyond the letter of the law, uh, although we might want to cling to the original Hebrew to go inside of the line of the law. Interesting. So the Hebrew is go inside the law. Lifnim, yes, to go inside Lifnim meshurat hadin. It's like literally a line to go inside. It's it's a it's a metaphor that doesn't even really make sense on its face unless we sort of turn it into that more common phrase that we know in English about going beyond the letter of the law. And maybe we'll decide together if we want to use that. So it's already super fascinating, right? But then there's more because you know the other stuff. You understand why you have to teach it to your kids. This, this is mission critical. This is imperative because then the text goes on to quote Rabbi Yochanan saying that Jerusalem 
was destroyed because they judged it in the law of the Torah. And the Talmud itself is flabbergasted. It says, what did you want them to do? To use Zoroastrian law? And no, it tells us it's not the body of the law. It's not the source of the law that was the problem of choosing Torah over some other body of law like Zoroastrian law. It's that they upheld the law rather than doing this thing of going beyond it or inside of it. And that's a pretty staggering thing. And what I wanted to talk to you about today is, as you probably know, our tradition gives all sorts of reasons. Uh, different rabbis have offered different reasons over time for why Jerusalem, which is to say the self-determination, the political body of the Jewish people was destroyed, right? And some of them are not particularly imaginative, like Jerusalem was destroyed because people stopped observing the Sabbath properly. Or the most famous one, and I think one that we might want to talk about, is that some rabbis say that Jerusalem was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of enmity. Baseless hatred. Baseless hatred, exactly. But this is confusing, right? Right. Jerusalem was destroyed for following the law. One would think it would be the opposite, that Jerusalem was maintained because people followed the law. But no, it was destroyed for following the law. So it arouses us to ask, what is he talking about? Exactly. What is he talking about? And also, it's not just any law. I mean, this is Torah, right? So it's divine law. So presumably, it's a good law. So it's not just, well, you picked a bad law. It should be what we're supposed to do. We're following Torah law, therefore good things happen. But the passage you chose says uh, we're following Torah laws, therefore the worst thing happened. Exactly. We fell apart. We actually couldn't maintain a civilization by a kind of adherence to the law that our tradition is critiquing here. So that is the question. And it, to me, it just leads to question upon question about what it means to enforce the law in a righteous way. And obviously that's really important to me because this is my life's work, right? To practice law enforcement in a way that is fair and just, which is what I think this Talmudic text is trying to nudge us toward understanding. Well, could it also be confirming what this fascinating passage in Deuteronomy 6.18 says, where it says, you shall do what is fair and good in the eyes of Hashem. Now, one might say, wait, wait, we just went through hundreds, maybe low thousands of commandments. Like, isn't that what we should follow? But no, in comes Moses in Deuteronomy and says, you shall do what is fair and good in the eyes of Hashem. One would think you have two choices. You either do what's fair and good or you follow the law. Like when you do your taxes, no one says, uh, submit whatever you think is fair and good. Right. It's like a safety valve also, or sort of a meta concept of a kind of value that's higher than the law. I had not made that connection to Deuteronomy, but I think you're exactly right that they are posing the same problem with the same solution. But it's hard to understand the problem when you believe in the law, when you have faith in the law, and it's hard to understand how exactly you're going to manage that solution. What are the rules for going beyond or inside the letter of the law, right? Exactly. And maybe the answer is that part of the law is that you have to go beyond, or as you said, inside the law. Now, Nachmanides had this uh, incredible term. He referred to people who are schmucks with Torah license. Nachmanides said something about... Oh, yeah, yeah. He said you could be a schmuck with a Torah license. And he talked about this regularly, I think in the exact same context, where he said that you could follow every law and still be a schmuck. And I think the example that either he gave or others gave, gave him commenting on it was... For instance, there's kosher food and there's unkosher food. Okay, so you only eat kosher food, but there's no legal limit on the amount of kosher food that you can eat. So you could theoretically all day just eat birthday cake. But in that case, you would be a schmuck with Torah license. And we can think of a lot worse examples of what people could be and, and who they could be 
if they only followed the law. And I think this was basically a criticism against people who just said exactly what the passage you chose said, what I have to do to be a good person is just follow the law. And yet, if we think about it, one could just follow any law, violate nothing and be a total schmuck. It's interesting, Mark, because I think we are going in two different directions and we should compare them side by side. So you're offering a reading that says the problem and the reason Jerusalem fell apart is because everyone just followed the law and they didn't do that extra thing. They didn't realize that there were these outside values like fairness and judgment or good judgment, right? Good judgment. Not to justice, but good judgment that were plus factors, something that you're supposed to do beyond the letter of the law. I actually, and and this might just be me bringing my own experiences to the text, and you'll tell me if I'm superimposing them on the text. I thought this was to say, sometimes you can't follow the letter of the law. You can't enforce every single law. And standing down from the law is part of justice. And that's complicated. And obviously, I say that because you're not ever going to find a prosecutor in our country who is enforcing every single law against every single person who violates it every single time a violation happens with the same level of intensity. And to me, that's the hard work of being a prosecutor is to know what to pursue and what not to pursue. That's where we bring in our humanity, our judgment. And I actually don't know that finding the kind of good judgment that you describe is any easier than the kind of judgment that I'm describing. But there is a divergence there that I think is interesting. Right. Now, when you're a prosecutor, how do you make these calls? Because you must get confronted all the time with circumstances where you could prosecute somebody. You have the body of the law on your side. You have abundant evidence. It's not a tactical problem, but it's a question of, given the way you interpret this passage, is it right and good that I enforce the law? And the answer is not automatically yes from what you're saying. Right. I think it's not. And I think that um, any prosecutor who tells you the answer is always yes is just in denial about what the job is and is is lying. And it's a very reductive idea of law and order. You know, I hear order reverberating in, in this passage as well. The line of the law, what we're calling the letter of the law, but it's really the line of the law. It's about order. It's about order not actually having justice inside of it on its own. And I'm not sure what the answer is, but I want to offer you one from inside of the text if you want to look at it again together. And you'll tell me if this convinces you. So as I was sort of pondering this idea, I went back to the top and I went back to the other things that we're supposed to be passing on in our tradition before we get to these thorny questions about how to enforce the law. What we said are sort of dependency work. So things like visiting the sick or burial. These are encounters with other people. These are about meeting people at their most desperate and at their most needy and not just like empathizing with them, but actually doing something for them, right? I mean, these are action verbs. Well, that's right. I mean, in the Torah, knowledge is always preceded by action. Yes. And Adam knew his wife. He's about to make a child with his wife. And God remembered Hannah. He's about to enable her to have children. There's no notion of a purely cognitive sense of awareness, of knowledge. If you don't act, you don't know. It's exactly right. And so we come into what seems like a question about just knowledge, about how to enforce the law, having been primed with these acts, these fundamental acts that are about our humanity, and I would say about our Judaism also. And so maybe Maybe what it means to go inside or beyond the letter of the law is to bring the learning from those acts of meeting people at their most vulnerable 
into law enforcement. And maybe that's the source of knowing when to turn it on, when to turn it off, when to pursue, when not to pursue, how to indict a case, not just based on the facts, but on your sense of justice. Is this because human circumstances, conduct and relationships are too complicated for any body of law to encompass? Yes, I think so. It's what Shakespeare said in Hamlet, where he said there are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than are in your philosophy. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have this catch-all phrase in, in Deuteronomy 6.18. There's no way that even the author of the Torah, which is the greatest book ever written beyond compare, could anticipate every circumstance where law would have to be applied. Exactly. But the Talmud, it doesn't leave us at sea because that's pretty scary when you say that, right? Like, how are we going to know if not following the body of the law? How are we going to know that we're doing it right? How are we going to train ourselves to use discretion in this way? And I think what this passage is telling us is do the other stuff and then you will know. If you are the kind of person who engages in acts of chesed, who makes sure to bury the dead and to visit the sick, you will get the equipment, the judgment, the humanity, the understanding that you need in order to do this. Because if, that's why these things sit next to each other in this text. So to be a good prosecutor or lawgiver or judge, you need to have a good character. Yes. And character is developed through acts. It's not that one of us is born with better character than another. All of us can go out there and improve our character by doing acts of chesed, of acts of loving kindness. Yes. And your fascinating insight here is those acts and that character development is actually what makes you a better legal professional. Yes. Which nobody would anticipate, but for this passage, by the way. I mean, right. Now, if, if one of your students at Columbia or NYU came up to you after class and said, OK, professor, um, standing on one foot, when should I or how should I execute uh, prosecutor, prosecutorial discretion? You probably pull up a passage. Mm hmm. I mean, I might pull up this passage. I might punch by saying, oh, it's easy. Just go beyond and inside the letter and the line of the law. That just raises more questions. <laughs> Is, I mean, didn't Hillel's answer on one foot also raise more questions? That's right. That's right. Yes. A, a, a good Jewish question raises more questions. That's right. The rest is commentary. That's saying keep studying, kid. Right. But, but, but would, would, you, would you tell that student, develop your character, like go serve the poor? Yes. In the best interpretation of your tradition, develop your character. And it won't be overnight. It won't be immediate, but nothing worthy is. And in so doing, you will learn when and how to exercise prosecutorial discretion, among many other things. I think that's exactly right. And I think that it's an ongoing process and then we can make it more granular and specific. So for example, I do think it's important for prosecutors to go to jails and prisons just to see it and to understand to me, that's the analog here in a way of visiting the sick or burying the dead, just to go, to see, to develop your character. I'm not going to draw a very clear line, no pun intended about line or maybe slightly intended, between that experience that is character building and having good judgment in enforcement of the law. But it certainly seems to me it is the kind of thing that our tradition is telling us to do. So what kinds of things um, do you learn by visiting prisons that you can't learn anywhere else, that you can't learn in textbooks, you can't learn in class, you can't learn in the courtroom. Like, what would you get from that lived experience of a visit that is irreplaceable and, and will help inform the wisdom of a prosecutor or a judge? Well, I can tell you myself, just having visited some prisons, some of the things that 
I've learned, I think that no amount of reading or reflection can really tell you what it means for a human being to be deprived of his or her liberty. And look, I'm in the business of sometimes um, asking for people to be deprived of their liberty. So I'm not rejecting that as a, as a notion. I'm not a prison abolitionist, but I do think it should always be a last resort. And that sounds sort of like a cute thing to say, but when you feel it, you might absorb better and understand and take with you it was something that will help you to make that a lived reality, right? To make sure that you're only asking for deprivation of liberty uh, when you think it's absolutely necessary. So that's a part of it. And also, and, and, and tailoring it too. I mean, I, I visited a friend of mine in prison a few years ago and um, I was struck. He, he said, um, there's one guy here for 15 months, one guy here 15 years, same crime, some kind of fraud. I said, what's the difference? He said, the judge. I said, is the deterrent effect the same at 15 months as it is at 15 years? Yes. Right. So the remaining 13 and a half years plus is just a deadweight loss to society? Right. Well, I think in general, Mark, uh, length of sentence is a very hard thing to understand in the abstract. Oh, I'm going to ask for 20 years or I'm going to ask for 15 years based on the following factors. Maybe I live in a jurisdiction that gives me a guide for plugging in different facts to generate that number. But then you get to prison and you can see what it's like to live with the weight of those years. And look, I think we're really struggling with a country, you know, as a country with questions about whether we are getting these numbers even remotely right. Is it possible we're getting them completely wrong? Yes, I do think it's possible that we're getting them completely wrong. Let's just assume, because this is what I believe, that principally the function of prison is public safety. I think these numbers may be completely out of whack with what public safety requires. And maybe this act can be an ingredient in that kind of understanding. Something I connect to that, and and to answer your original question, well, what can you really learn about going into prison is alongside the debate about whether sentences are too long or too short or just right is the question about whether people change, right? People always talk about this and parole applications and clemency applications just go to prison and you see somebody who committed a violent crime when they were young and now they're old, you can just feel the change. And that's important. I think it's an important thing. And you might evaluate it differently. It might matter to you, might not matter to you, but I think better to see it than not to see it. If you'll indulge me, I'll actually tell you a kind of an interesting story of something that happened to me last year when I went to visit a prison. I went to visit a program at a maximum security facility in Connecticut that was doing things differently. Basically, the program was sort of a, a very open space, free prison. I understand that sounds like an oxymoron, but but the incarcerated people had a lot of freedoms. And the population was made up of two groups. It was made up of old timers. So men who were serving a life sentence or something close to it. So probably had done something incredibly violent to have gotten such a long sentence. And then younger guys who were looking at shorter sentences. And as a society, we want to make sure that they leave prison better equipped to live safely and productively in society. And the idea was these mentorship relationships to develop between these two groups, the ones who would never leave and the ones who were definitely going to leave and going to leave very soon. There was um, a guy in the yard and Someone called me over to meet him because he had published an article in the Yale Law Journal, an incarcerated person. And I went to meet him and immediately my forward thinking 
machinery in my brain started, oh, so you maybe you can't take the bar even though you have a violent conviction, you can get an exemption. I'm like thinking through all of the things that could happen to him. He could become a law professor. He could become a great public defender. And I sort of start having this conversation with him and he says, oh, no, no, I'm in group A. I am one of the lifers here. And I look at him and he's, I ask him how old he is. He's my age. So I couldn't even absorb that idea. Uh, so we are both in our mid forties, early forties, but he at that point had been incarcerated for 25 years and he had murdered somebody when he was, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years old. It took my breath away in that moment. Look, I've sought very long sentences. I'm not trying to make a policy point here. I'm making a point about what happens in these acts and in these human encounters of the kind that our text is urging us to make before we get into the business of law enforcement. Uh, it sort of, it just, it came as a shock to me that there was no next chapter in his life. Yeah, there's this extraordinary montage of the, from the Shawshank Redemption of the three different parole hearings that the Morgan Freeman character has. And you can see in the first two, He's literally going through the motion so much so that his words are exactly the same at 10 years and at 20 years, exactly the same language. And then I think it was at 40 years, may have been 30, but I think at 40, you just see this completely genuine statement that really spoke of transformation that took a very long time and then they stamp release. But it's just all in this montage of exactly what you're saying. You can see this change. The change took a very, in the movie anyway, which is a great movie, but the, the change took a very long time. It is a great movie and, and change. And maybe some people don't change, but it is good to see that some people do and to sort of learn it in, a, in, in just a specific way and not in, in an abstract way. And I think it's one of the things that I really appreciate about our tradition, Mark, that it really does, as you said, force us into acts. I mean, for a, a tradition that is so study-based, that is often so much the image of what it means to engage, you know, in Jewish life. I think it's important to recall that there's a whole other way of learning that is demanded of us. Absolutely. I think in the Talmud, it's the, the question's raised, what's greater, study or action? And the winning answer is study, but it's because study leads to action. If it didn't lead to action, it wouldn't have won the argument, but it's because it leads to action that, that, that it won. But it's such an interesting point, your interpretation of the passage, which was not mine coming into this conversation. It's so interesting that if you follow the letter of the law, well, it's kind of like, it reminds me of what Orwell said in his great essay, Politics in the English Language. He, he goes through, I think it was five rules about good writing. And then at the end, he said, he said, if following any of these would cause a barbaric outcome, violate them. <laughs> it's exactly the application of the passage. So these are the five rules for good writing. That's exactly right. You could follow them and the outcome could be barbaric, in which case, forget everything I just said and do what is That's good and right. E exactly right. Because maybe also certain laws of writing of what is and is not criminal behavior are not meant to exist in certain combinations that are overlaid on certain facts. Life's complicated. Life's complicated. Yeah. Well, Tali, thank you for such a fascinating discussion of this extraordinary rabbinic passage. And um the concluding question always moves from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, or in this case, uh, accompanying rabbinic text, to a very different text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And on the first page of the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned, one, that everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Tali, in all of your years as being um, a prosecutor, federally and with uh, 
New York City. What are two things that you've learned about humankind? Well, let me start by in, in answering that question. Let me tell you that one of the hardest things about being a prosecutor, and I think that this is not well appreciated, let alone well understood, is that you are often meeting people at the lowest, darkest, most difficult moment of their lives. And that's true whether you're talking about the victim or the witness or the defendant. You know, operating in, in, inside that darkness can be really hard. And our responsibility, I think, is to, you know, in those moments is to move to a solution that is as positive and fair and delivers on safety as much as possible for people. And I guess um, I've learned about people in those encounters, again, no matter who they are in that cast, how much capacity they have to be something different from who they are in that moment. I do believe in the adage that none of us should be defined by the very worst thing uh, that we've done or the very worst thing that we've experienced. You know, I might say we often, I think in our society, sort of, we, we tell victims what their experience being victimized in a crime um, means for their life trajectory. And so maybe to go back to what we were talking about earlier that I learned in prison, I've learned about people's capacity for change and for complexity. And I believe in that very much. Well, Tali, thank you for, as always, such a fascinating conversation and great insights into this really awesome uh, rabbinic passage, which has so much to teach us. It's such an enduring basis. It's amazing. Thank you so much for studying it with me and to helping me to understand it better. Thank you. And uh, God bless you in your run for DA. New York needs you and wants you. Thank you, Mark. You are the God of the